This is CW News, live from Berlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks out on the standoff over Ukraine. He says the U.S. is ignoring Moscow's security concerns, but signals Russia's ready for another round of negotiations. Also coming up, attacks on churches are on the rise in India. New laws cracking down on religious conversion are emboldening right-wing Hindu groups and Christian leaders fear harassment or even jail. Plus, an icy road to the Beijing Winter Olympics as countries stage a diplomatic boycott over human rights. And some Olympic teams are also already testing positive for coronavirus as infections in China increase. I'm Gerhard Elfers. Welcome to the program. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's security concerns in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. He said the West was using Ukraine to hinder Russia's development. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations, but so far neither side has been willing to budge on their positions. Russia is still in dialogue with the U.S. and its allies about Ukraine. But President Vladimir Putin expressed skepticism about the process so far. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. In a press conference afterwards, Johnson warned that war should be avoided at all costs. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. But Ukraine are not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces to 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. And earlier we asked our correspondent Nick Connolly in Kiev about how Ukrainians are feeling about their role in what essentially is increasingly seen as a conflict between the West and Russia. This is what he had to say. I mean, I think for Ukrainians, the fact that they are going to be, as long as they are not part of NATO, not part of the EU, or not 
closely controlled by Russia. There are always going to be tensions around Ukraine. Ukraine is too big in terms of population, in terms of its size geographically, and in terms of its strategic location in the heart of Europe to be a kind of strategic afterthought in the way that a country like Finland can be. That is a given. I think most Ukrainians are not surprised by that. I think the big thing for most Ukrainians is whether Ukraine is at the table when these discussions are taking place. Now, Vladimir Putin has consistently ignored the Ukrainians in recent months. Russian leaders calling Ukraine a Western vassal and talking only to the US uh, administration. The US, for its part, has made a, a big effort to try and include Ukrainians in this format. We even hear Antony Blinken, US Secretary of State, saying nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine at the table. So uh, for now, I think Ukrainians feeling relatively calm that they are being kept in the loop. Nick Connolly there reporting from Kiev. Let's have a look now at some of the other stories making headlines. President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo of Guinea, uh, Guinea-Bissau has issued a statement saying he is safe and that calm has returned to the West African nation. His statement came after heavy gunfire erupted in the capital. Security forces reportedly repelled an attack on a government compound. In the U.S., pharmaceutical companies BioNTech and Pfizer are seeking emergency authorization for a vaccine developed for children under the age of five. If approved, this weaker version of the vaccine would be the first to be made available in the U.S. to children above the age of six months. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization has warned countries not to lift all their COVID-19 restrictions at once. The head of the WHO said Omicron should not be underestimated and cautioned that the virus is continuing to evolve. And it's really, really careful. To India now, where there has been a rise in the number of attacks on Christian churches and gatherings. They're being carried out by right-wing Hindu groups emboldened by new laws cracking down on religious conversion. Critics say these groups are abusing the laws to push their own agenda, often facing no consequences themselves. DW's Delhi correspondent, Dimisha Jaswal, traveled to the town of Hubali in the southern state of Karnataka to meet a pastor who has shut down his church in the face of continued abuse. The highlight of Pastor Somu Avradi's week has always been the Sunday service. But now, he's praying alone at his church in Hubli. It is the first time he has been back in more than three months. Last October, as the pastor was on his way to the church, he received urgent phone calls warning him that volunteers linked with Hindu right-wing groups were disrupting the Sunday prayer gathering there. They had barged in and started loudly chanting Hindu hymns. When the pastor arrived to question them, they claimed that they had proof he had tried to forcefully convert a Hindu man in their midst. The pastor said he'd never met the alleged victim before, yet he was still taken to the police station on charges of verbally abusing a man from a protected caste. I was the one who called the police. I was going to file a case against them, but they pushed me aside and started beating me. They beat seven members of my church. They entered the police station and abused and threatened me. No action has been taken against the Hindu group. It was the pastor who spent 11 days in jail and he continues to face charges. It didn't end there. The pastor's family was terrorized in their neighborhood. Their landlord threatened with harm if he didn't evict them. They were forced to move. They also had to pull their daughter out of school because she was being bullied. My children's classmates were harassing them. 
taunting them that their father had been sent to prison. My children were embarrassed. I had to pull them out of school. They haven't been able to return. Over the last year, Christian groups have reported a spike in similar attacks and harassment in Karnataka, especially after plans for a new law were announced. The state of Karnataka is in the process of passing an anti-conversion law which targets conversions considered fraudulent or forced. But the definition of what is illegal is very broad and the punishments very strict. Right-wing Hindu groups here strongly support the law. Manjunath Hipsur was amongst the men who stormed Pastor Avaradi's church. He alleges that Christian congregations like Avaradi's brainwash Hindus into rejecting their religion or offer financial incentives to convert. The law, he says, will give them strong grounds to put an end to this. Once the law comes, we can demolish these churches. We are already prepared to demolish them, but we are waiting for the law to be passed. Once it is passed, our hands are no longer tied. We are free to take action. We can catch them and report them to the police. And they'll go to prison. For now, Pastor Avradi visits church members at home and only in areas considered safe. This man and his family were also forced out of their village after the attack on the church. But they say they find comfort in prayer. All they want is the freedom to do so in peace. Well, the WS Delhi correspondent Nimisha Jaswal filed this report and she joins us now from Delhi. Uh, uh, Nimisha, these attacks have been going on for some time. Why is the government not doing more to protect these Christian communities? Well, Gerhard, the simple reason is that the government is often one of those making these allegations. In the case that we just watched, the BJP's elected representative was actually one of the people who led the protests following the pastor's arrest and actually called for action against him. Now, of course, it's important to note here that, the, that India's Christian community is one of the oldest in Asia and dates back centuries. Yet the target of these groups, as well as BJP legislators, is those who were born Hindu and have, and have either officially converted or are covertly believing in Christianity. But, of course, BJP legislators themselves have actually been present or have made speeches that directly call for action and sometimes even violence against these communities. And they are, of course, also pushing anti-conversion laws across the country. Well, tell us more about this, this anti-conversion bill. What's its purpose? Well, to look at the one in Karnataka, Gerhard, interestingly, it's called the Freedom of Religion Bill. And if you look at it simply, it actually just prescribes ways to convert. For example, it says that you should let authorities know a month before converting and also report your conversion a month after it. However, all these reports actually allow for time uh, for time for, for Hindu right-wing groups to attack or abuse these people. So this is generally avoided. In addition, many kinds of conversions are considered fraudulent or forced and can be charged. The word allurement, for example, is used for what is considered illegal and that has such a broad definition that pretty much anyone can be charged with forcing conversions and anyone can report these conversions as well, not just family but neighbours and bystanders too and strict action is taken against these people. Uh, Nimisha, India has also been recording a rise in attacks on minorities for quite some time. How is this impacting the Modi government's popularity there? 
Well, while international condemnation and attention has been brought to the fact that attacks on minorities are rising in India, domestically, political analysts believe that this could actually be adding to the Modi government's popularity because of this government's agenda of a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation, which is being promoted not only through policies like these, but also laws and, and as well as silence on attacks on minorities. Now, this, for example, can, can include saying that Christians are forcing conversions or saying that Muslims are marrying Hindu girls and practicing love jihad, all of these allegations demonizing minorities and saying that Hindus are under threat and that Hindus should take over power and should be the, uh, should be the religion that drives the nation. This of course plays well amongst the voters for Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government as well. The W's. Nimisha Jaswal there reporting. Thank you very much, Nimisha. The Beijing Winter Olympics are due to open later this week and the US and other nations are staging a diplomatic boycott to protest China's human rights record. It means the countries will only send athletes but no government officials. And that's not the only thing casting a chill over the Games. Growing numbers of COVID-19 cases are also worrying athletes and officials. But Beijing insists the Games will be safe. Arrival at the airport in Beijing. Chinese workers in protective gear welcome the incoming Olympic teams and their baggage. Then it's a PCR test before a trip to the venues in the Olympic Village where similar tests are to follow on a daily basis. Caution is the watchword. China's cross-country skiers are being shielded from foreign rivals, their Norwegian coach tells us. With this team we have been staying in China the full time for the past two years. So um, they have been extremely careful. We haven't actually competed uh, internationally for two years. Of the foreign athletes who have already arrived, 125 have tested positive for COVID-19 and have isolated. It's not clear whether they'll all get the negative test result they need in time to compete. The opening ceremony fireworks have been rehearsed, but critics say that China is using the pizzazz of the games to distract from human rights abuses. So the CCP's purpose is exactly to turn the sports arena into a stage for political legitimacy and a tool to whitewash all those atrocities. But China itself boasts of its strength and promises a safe Winter Olympics in Beijing. Some sports news now. NFL superstar and seven-time Super Bowl winner Tom Brady has confirmed he's retiring at the age of 44. Brady recently hinted that he was considering his future, but has now confirmed the end of an astonishing 22-year career. Brady retires as the most successful quarterback in NFL history, having won six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots and a final one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. And that's it from me and the news team here in Berlin. Uh, don't go away. Business News is up next with Stephen Beardsley. I'm Gerhard Elfes. Thanks for joining us. What secrets lie behind these walls? Discover new adventures in 360 degrees. And explore fascinating world heritage sites. DW World Heritage 360. Get the app now.
When I arrived here, I slept with six people in a room. It was hard. I even got white hair. Learning the German language helped me a lot. This gives me a great opportunity to interact with society. You want to know their story? Info Migrants, verified and reliable information for migrants. <laughs> So much for peak oil. ExxonMobil and Chevron prove that there's still plenty of reason to drill. Rising oil prices catapult both companies to their highest profits in years and draw investors back to the fossil fuel giants. Also on the show, Berlin nixes a 4.5 billion euro takeover of German semiconductor firm Siltronic from a Taiwanese company. And we'll drop in on a cafe in Thailand where coffee is served up with a healthy portion of investment strategy in cryptocurrencies. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Beardsley in Berlin. It was almost two years ago that the pandemic gutted oil prices, briefly turning contract prices negative and leading some investors to declare that oil's best days were over. Well, take a look at what oil majors did last year. ExxonMobil recording $23 billion in profit. Chevron, meanwhile, almost $16 billion. Both For both of them, their highest profits in seven years. So what happened? Well, oil prices simply rose again. Brent crude, the global standard, is up from $51 a barrel in January 2021 to $89 a barrel now. Uh, analysts from J.P. Morgan even expect that the price will reach $100 this summer. Now, earlier, I spoke with our financial correspondent in New York, Jens Korda, and asked how long oil prices could continue to rise. Well, I mean, there are some um, estimates uh, by J.P. Morgan, for instance, or even by Goldman Sachs. We could reach uh, the $100 uh, crude mark um, even uh, within the next couple of uh, months. Uh, there is a feeling in the oil uh, market that traders actually want to see this uh, $100 mark per barrel. If that's really going uh, to happen, uh, depends clearly on uh, plenty factors. Let's see, for example, what Wednesday's OPEC Plus meeting will bring uh, to the supply side. Then if you look at the uh, demand side, I mean, the weather is still uh, pretty cold, so that could uh, lead to more uh, demand uh, for um, heating oil. And then uh, what happens when uh, the lockdown measures in China are over? So that could bring uh, more demand and drive prices um, higher. So if that's going to happen, nobody uh, can tell you for 100 percent. But um, there is the feeling uh, that we might actually approach $100 a barrel uh, pretty soon. You know, Jens, Exxon has said that other companies uh, like BP and Shell were moving uh, too quickly away from oil or that they were under investing in oil um, and that their strategy was to benefit from that by, ben by, by, by investing more in oil. They seem to be right, aren't they? Or at least in the short term. Yeah. Yeah, let me exaggerate a bit. I mean, uh, not that long ago, uh, one, two years ago, uh, there were a lot of voices um, saying that oil is dead. Or I remember uh, the year 2015 when Saudi's prince um, Al-Walid said we will never, ever see uh, $100 per barrel oil um, again. So, well, that seems to be uh, rather uh, wrong. If you look at what uh, not just uh, Exxon, but uh, in general, U.S. oil companies are doing, uh, clearly they've seen uh, the trend uh, that the 
market is changing. Uh, there is uh, more investment um, into renewable um, energies. But at the other side, uh, we will need a lot of oil for quite some time in the future. And the U.S. oil companies um, are pretty much doing all of the above, and they are also trying to be the last one standing when it comes uh, to uh, delivering uh, to deliver all that oil that still be needed in the future. And, and yes, I mean those results uh, clearly show uh, with oil prices, especially at the level where they are, you can still make tons of money with uh, pumping and selling for oil. All right, so plenty of money to be made with oil. Jens Korda in New York. Thank you very much. Let's go to some of the other business stories making headlines. Last year, German breweries produced and sold less beer. Sales volumes falling by 2.2% to 8.5 billion liters. That's the lowest ever recorded by the Federal Statistical Office. The latest fall was worsened by the closure of bars and restaurants due to the pandemic. However, the overall trend isn't new. Beer sales in Germany have fallen by 24% in three decades. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission says it will perform an antitrust review of Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Call of Duty maker Activision Blizzard. The $68 billion deal was announced last week. The FTC wants to see whether the takeover will harm competition. The German government has rejected a proposed multi-billion euro takeover of German wafer maker Siltronic by Taiwan's Global Wafers by failing to act before the approval deadline. Now, both companies make so-called wafers, they're roughly one millimeter thick sheets of silicon necessary for the manufacturing of semiconductors. Those, of course, being a, the backbone of a, the global technology sector. Now, Berlin's review is part of a recent law allowing the government to analyze foreign takeovers involving sensitive or critical technologies. And I'm joined now by Diddy Kirsten Tatlow. She's a senior fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations and author of a book on China's relations with Europe and technology transfer. Diddy, welcome to the show. The German government has said here that there was too little time to review this deal before the established deadline. Is that plausible when we think that there is key technology, including semiconductors, um, that they've said they have, have an interest in keeping in the country? Right. Well, they did have a lot of time, it must be said, um, many, many months. I think it was just about over a year, in fact. Um, so it's a little hard to understand what's going on here, except if one thinks that there were serious concerns in the German government against allowing a uh, non-German, non-EU company to invest in um, a German a successful German company. So there's a lot to be asked about there. As an outsider looking at this, were there security issues that were obvious here or that could have come up, especially when you consider this is Taiwan, a country that's in a, um, it's in a, a long-term um, crisis situation with China, for example? Yeah, so it's it really is quite um, complicated. And I think one thing is that clearly Germany, the new German government and the European Union wants to increasingly keep um, this type of industry growing in Germany, they're becoming more protective and are scrutinizing investment from overseas much, much more carefully. However, this begs the question whether one shouldn't de define, um, you know, from like-minded investments from, say, investments that could be problematical. So, you know, for I think for the German government, Taiwan would be considered as a friendly state. I don't think they per se have a problem with investments from Taiwan. Yet, of course, there is a concern about Taiwan's ge geopolitical location, as you point out. And in fact, it's worth pointing out here that um, the Chinese government approval on this investment, which 
was required because in these sorts of investments, um, approval is required from market market regulatory authorities in many countries, uh, which is a fact that many people don't realize, um, came with so many conditions attached that, in fact, it would have guaranteed future supply to China from Global Wafers and Siltronic, the future company. And that was possibly something that the German government in its own way was quite concerned about. What kind of message does this send to other companies who are investing in building this kind of technology or other key technologies when they're looking at their options for selling their production or for merging? Well, I think it's, you know, questionable that the German government, frankly, um, has said no to this deal from Taiwan, where we see countries like Japan, which are like-minded countries to Germany, which are in an Indo-Pacific, um, you know, in, the, in that region, are in fact welcoming investment from Taiwan. For example, from TSMC, tem, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, into Japan to build semiconductor companies there. So it does send a signal that Europe is not entirely open for business when it comes to these types of investments. And um, Germany or Europe, the European Union were uh, able to differentiate a little bit more between what kinds of investments are safe for Europe and what kinds are perhaps not safe. And I don't think that they've particularly done that in this case. All right, so more questions perhaps than answers coming out of this deal or no deal. Didi Kirsten Tatlow, Senior Fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, good investment advice can come from anywhere, but what about your local cafe? One coffee joint in Northeast Thailand has become a hotspot for cryptocurrency traders and is even offering investment advice. Of course, crypto markets can be more jolting than a double espresso. At the hip coffee and restaurant cafe in Thailand, customers are being encouraged to eat and drink in front of their screens. These screens, however, show the latest prices and trends in cryptocurrency and it's attracting a whole new order of clientele. Having so many screens helps a lot. Like four or five days ago when the market crashed, we immediately know and get to analyze crashing factors and decide whether we should execute the buy order or not. To me, it's exciting because I get to meet people with the same interests. As traders, we get to exchange information because in the trading world, the more information you have, the stronger upper hand you will have. We are competing against millions of people, not just one. Along with coffee, the cafe offers free investment advice. It says it's aiming to provide cash-making alternatives to people in the province. And it hopes to start its own cryptocurrency coin someday, too. Cryptocurrency is gaining traction in Thailand, where the government introduced a crypto tax in 2018. The Southeast Asian country traded more than 7 billion U.S. dollars in digital assets last November, according to data from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Its finance minister recently announced the government would issue guidelines to make trading simpler for Thai citizens. The screens at HIP are making things simpler for cafe owners, too, who have doubled their customer base since installing them in 2020. And finally, Wordle, the free online word guessing game that's become a sudden hit, has a new home. The New York Times company has purchased the application from its developer. Josh Wardle, the game is a play on his name, says the deal is a seven-figure amount. Now, players have six attempts to guess the five-letter word of the day. Wordle has amassed millions of daily users since its October release. But some fans are worried they may now have to pay to play. 
The Times, however, says it will initially keep the game free. And that's it for me and the DW business team here in Berlin. You can find out more about these and other stories online, dw.com slash business. Thanks for watching. Going natural. Treating pain with spices. Rashes with tea. And anxiety by slowing to a snail's pace. Simple treatment methods that are also incredibly effective. In good shape. Next on DW. Living without a home. Close to a million people in Germany are homeless. Even with a job or a pension, they can't afford a permanent place to stay. Their fate is the result of a housing market policy that was doomed to fail. Why isn't more being done to help? Close up. In 60 minutes on DW. mountain village know them all but can everyone be adorned with them regardless of gender Hema wears blue the color of her favorite team but sexist traditions prevent her from going to games and playing an insurmountable obstacle blue girl football on the peak starts February 4th on DW.